The Mind Sponsor for today is upcoming podcast series, Personality Sleuths. Personality Sleuths will be co-hosted by Dr. J. Galen Buckwalter, whose career includes being the founding chief science officer of eHarmony and me, leveraging my experience as a venture capitalist and entrepreneur. We will analyze personality using a speech-based proprietary AI algorithm, along with the clues evident in social media and the popular press. Each episode will dissect the life of someone famous who gained the trust of many before becoming notorious for duping people, committing a crime, or losing exorbitant amounts of money, all while the clues were there all along and how they spoke. Tune in soon. Our heart sponsor for today is Decoding Success. Decoding Success enables you to get a feel for the personality of the people with whom you are interacting passively, without alerting the party that you are doing it, such as would happen typically when a questionnaire is used, the only other means to capture the analyzable data. Using text from emails, messages, or a Twitter account, Decoding Success can optimize your chances for a successful encounter by prepping you ahead of time. Want to know about that entrepreneur in whose company you are contemplating an investment prior to the pitch meeting? Want to screen which candidates will be best suited to join your team before you even meet them? Visit D-E-C-O-D-I-N-G-S-U-C-C-E-S-S.com. On this episode, we have David Taylor Klaus. David was born in the Mid-Atlantic and studied psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Shortly after graduating, he co-founded a digital consulting agency called Digital Positions. Inspired by his personal experiences, he pivoted to become a coach. David's focus is in helping successful executives attain personal fulfillment, particularly by focusing on their families. In addition to launching his own coaching platform, David also mentors other coaches. He's also the host of a podcast, Mindset Mondays, as an active public speaker. David, thank you so much for being on our show. Absolutely my pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. That makes me very excited to hear. I am looking forward to it as well. The um, Within the first few minutes of our talking, I was struck by both your eloquence and your perspicacity, which is a word I don't get to use often. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to use it now. Um, I, so yeah, I got flogged from my last live broadcast on Monday. I got several people that, that were razzing me for using my SAT words. I said, look, I paid <laughs> enough for my education and all my test prep. I damn well better be able to use them somewhere. Well, goodness, exactly. It's almost like they get more upset with polysyllabic words than they do with expletives. <sighs> that is so true. Four letter words are so much more enjoyed. <laughs> Welcomed for sure. Well, you are chatting with us from Georgia. Um, what I like to do is um, go way back. Um, and is your family from Georgia originally? Where were you born and raised? No, no, no. So, so first of all, I like to say that I'm in Atlanta. I try not to say that I'm in oh. Georgia. The only problem okay. with living in Atlanta is once you leave, you're surrounded by Georgia. So <laughs> it's sort of like the people in from Austin say they don't live in Texas, they live in Austin. Noted. Yeah, okay. we have a similar feeling. No, no, no. My 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 parents moved here when I was five. Now the okay. the Stephen was it? Who's the comedian? I think it was Steve Miller. He's his joke was always, "Yeah, I found it when I was six. No, my my parents uh, were were a whole family comes from Philadelphia, multiple generations. Right. They were looking, my dad was looking for a growing medical community. My mom wanted warm weather and they both wanted to be able to fly back to Atlanta, to Philadelphia easily for a family event. So they were aiming for Dallas and on their oh. way through, they came down the Eastern seaboard and they were going to turn West at Dallas. They got snowed into Atlanta and stayed. So that is a fantastic the rest story. is history. <laughs> wow. Okay, so you were born in Philadelphia and then came mm -hmm. to Atlanta, Atlanta, at five. Yeah. <laughs> okay, brilliant. Yeah. What was Baptist it like growing up in, in Atlanta? Philadelphia? Uh, growing up in Atlanta was odd because, so growing up Jewish in Atlanta was what made it interesting. Um, yeah. I, where I grew up, and I don't live but a couple miles from there now. Um, my God, it was 20 miles from where the Ku Klux Klan was reconstituted in 1898. Hmm. So I, I grew up in a city where as cosmopolitan and modern as it, as it 
fancied itself, people would find out I was Jewish and they would literally start looking for the horns on the top of my head. Whoa. They just Whoa. were not aware, uh, forget diversity, they weren't aware of other in a way yeah. that we hold as a standard now. So I mean, Atlanta's yeah. changed dramatically in those 50 Correct. years. Yeah. But, but it's fascinating. I, I, I get to pass as white, and yet I experience a version of othering that as soon as people become aware that I'm, that I'm not a white Anglo-Saxon Christian male, they, I get a form of othering that's, I mean, unique to our experience. Um, and it's great because it's, it's not like I can say to my black and brown friends, oh yeah, me too. No, yeah, because it's yeah. a very, it's a different experience. And, yeah. you know, I don't have as much commonality with my white friends because it's a different experience. Exactly. So yeah. growing up yeah. in Atlanta was was weird in that way, yeah. which is the most accurate that. word. That's so fascinating. I mean, I usually get busted when I say I'm a seam. So there's there's no scope for uh, <laughs> <laughs> any in between this. It's, I've got no my own category. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it's it's an amazing point that you've raised about uh, the challenges of that and kind of this even delayed othering <laughs> that might happen. Um, uh, gosh, yeah, human nature, just so fascinating. David, do you have siblings? I do. I have a sister five years younger okay. who married a man from Orlando and has moved down to the, the what did what did the governor accidentally call it? Um, heaven's Heaven's waiting room. Yeah. Oh dear. So um, yeah. So <laughs> my my sister moved down there long before she was in her eighties. <laughs> Got you. And Georgians remain trying to out stupefy. Uh, Florida. During during this pandemic, it's amazing that our governor and their governor seem to be literally trying to out more on each other with with right. how they're handling this and or not handling what's happening. Yeah, so, and and yeah. it's frustrating. It's there there are times that and there have been periods when we travel internationally where we just tell people we're Canadian and it's easier. That's the thing to do. Well, the the patches on the backpack when we were younger, right? right? Absolutely. Well, they don't ask maple. you what state you're from and then go, ooh. You know, if you say you're from Canada, <laughs> they don't even care what province it is. Yes. Yeah. No, exactly. Exactly. So um, the decision to go to Penn, what fueled that? <clears throat> yeah, that was, uh, it was the consequences of my actions. Um, <laughs> I had at that point, four generations of people behind me, or I was the fourth generation of my family from two different, two, you know, spotting in two different sides to go. Two to lineages. That's fantastic. And I was not and interested. You're like, in you're, you're legacy cubed. Oh, absolutely. And, and it's like everything I wore was red and blue as a baby. Forget blue or pink, right? So it, it wasn't a foregone conclusion. I was allowed to look at other schools, but I was going to be damn sure I didn't go to Penn because really? And I, uh, I applied to a bunch of other schools. I wanted to go to Northwestern. I wanted to be in their theater program. And that's where I had my heart set. I didn't get into the program I wanted to. I didn't find it until later. You had to apply, get accepted, and then apply, apply for, for that program. program. So that was oh. like, yeah, no. Um, <laughs> but the problem is, I torpedoed my chance with Penn. One of the questions on the essay, or at that point, the one question was, if you could interview or have dinner with um, any person, living, dead, or fictional, who would it be and why? Well, Ben Franklin founded Penn, and Jesus sort of has a good track record. So you, if you interviewed either one, of, if you selected either one of those, they didn't even read the essay. That was it. <laughs> so I picked Ben Franklin. Okay. And then when I found out about Northwestern and that wasn't going to pan out the way I wanted, I was like, crap. I called up. I tried to get on-campus interviews. I tried to get alumni interviews. I tried to get student interviews. I flogged them for everything I could. Then all of a sudden, I was like, well, what about the Alumni Center? They were like, dude, unless it's between, you know, it, it's down to you and another kid who's not legacy, it doesn't help you if you didn't apply early. So I was like, crap. 
So I went through every interview I could and I ended up getting in. Um, but yeah, that was, that was one of those first slapped across the face with my consequences at, at an adult level that, that I experienced. Well, you survived it well, I must say. I did, and, and I eventually <laughs> got a degree. That was Talk story. about resilience. Uh, yes. Well done on that side. Well, interesting quip about uh, Ben Franklin. So uh, I think among all the Ivies, we probably have the least brand equity possible. Um, a lot of people think of Penn State. Um, <laughs> as you all know so when i travel internationally and people ask the question and i respond and i get these blank looks my response to them is you know the guy on the hundred dollar bill like, i know oh. him like, yeah 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 he's the one who founded my university and that usually makes people excited about it <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating you know harvard princeton and yale i mean harvard yeah harvard yale and princeton yeah. have the name recognition um That's dartmouth true. for totally different reasons but penn it, it's fascinating how i mean look we have the running joke when they say oh penn state say no they use crayons we use pen which is just mean oh, but at least strikes yeah. they remember you for all the wrong reasons but <laughs> the idea that the oldest university in this country, the fact right. that that um, liberal arts education started with Penn, that was designed yes. for that. The history that ENIAC, the first computer, was created there. I mean, all the things that make Penn of note for folk who don't even care about universities. It's fascinating how none of it is known. No. They're like the quiet ivy. Taking yes. ass and taking names, but nobody knows theirs. Fascinating. <laughs> Second largest endowment of any university. Exactly. This is what's always confounded me. Yeah. Of course, okay. it doesn't help when the uh, ex-president was the alum. And of course, we had Harrison before that. But right. uh... the two presidents we had, one died before <laughs> serving a minute and from exactly. hubris. And the right. other one... Speaking of hubris, that, the exactly. other one. Right. Uh, <laughs> you noticed that Penn didn't mention the association with the last president? We didn't really Very advertise much. that. I no. was like, you know, it's okay if you don't know our name. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Shh, don't tell. <laughs> That's what we say. Hey, that was Wharton anyway. <laughs> That's right. Hilarious. So, however, wait, yeah. to go back to the legacy piece, none of my three children looked at it. It made it down okay. to the final eight for my our middle child, but it just it wasn't right the right school for any of them. Gotcha. You know, my kids were smart enough; they actually listened to the idea of go to the school that's best for you. Don't try to get into the best school you can. That's and they right. both they both have gone to wonderful Landed places, those. but Penn was that's not perfect. for them. Yeah. But I have a niece in Penn Med and a nephew who graduated from Penn. So at least we got a fifth generation. Wow. Somehow. Yeah. That legacy is continuing. It's very gotta, impressive. Gotta keep it going. Yeah. Nicely, nicely done. Um, I saw you participated in mask and wig. I did. I did. And you know, another story. What fun that must've been. It was a blast. I auditioned every year that I was there and, and I, you know, the, Dancing and the acting, not a problem. The singing, oh dear God, they were patient. They let me even <laughs> sing during auditions and they all knew that it was just a train wreck. And those were my best days. And so I wrote for Mask and Wig and I was backstage for Mask and Wig. And my kids finally asked me this just past year when we were up visiting before COVID, they said, so the three of you that wrote together, all that material, you never wrote in a character that couldn't sing? What's wrong with you? It's like, oh my God. Damn it, those insights that come so much later than when they're useful. Exactly. Um, thanks kids. Yeah, thanks <laughs> That's actually, lot. that is genius. It is okay, genius. But it never occurred at the time. Yeah, wow, no, wow. Hilarious, by the way. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> now, <Thanks. laughs> you shared with me how you left Penn and then came back to finalize your degree. So, walk us through that decision <laughs> process. What, what was going on that left it that, that made it tempting to go and do something else? 
the, the term that was used was a non-specific chemical dependency. Okay. Which means that appreciate that honesty. David. Anything that, was... that I could use, I did. Um, yeah. None of yeah. it in enough volume independently. My escape mechanisms, I had a menu to choose from, often right. overlapping. Right. Right. And April of my junior year, um, it came to a head at a Sigma Chi party. I left okay. the party in somebody else's shoes and somebody else's jacket and went straight to the airport in the wee hours, got on a flight to Atlanta and came back to my parents' house, basically was either sleeping or screaming at the refrigerator for nine days, just cleaning my system out. Um, and I figured I needed to have a different focus for a little while. So, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. as, as I became, and I'm still very good at, I was able to work the system in a way that served me. I was able to withdraw from approval from all of my classes instead of dropping out or Taking, failing out or right, being slaughtered. Yeah, exactly. yeah. And, um, I went to work. I went back to my first love, which was hospitality and worked in Atlanta for a while. And then in DC for a while, only to find that if I, they sent me a letter said, if you don't go back in the fall, it's the end of the second year, um, we're going to take away your credits. Hmm. Which turns out, I didn't find it till much later, it was an error. That's, you, you have a lot longer than two years. But so maybe they did you a service by lying to huge, you. Huge, huge service by <laughs> the clerical error. Be clerical error. We, we have an amazing psych department, which I know you know. So. You do. You know, my favorite is in the psych department, I had Marty Seligman for abnormal psychology. Oh. Martin Seligman, who is now the founder Fantastic. of positive psychology. So his yes. personal transformation from miserable, sweaty turtleneck wearing guy to <laughs> who he became when he turned his world around, that became yes. the seeds of positive psychology. And oh my God what an amazing body of work. So yeah, yeah, yeah I, I had so him for abnormal. He was not positive. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, I, I still remember Paul Rosen. Yeah. I'm sure he did. Yeah. Was were you, great character. Was Gleitman still there when you were, Henry Gleitman? He was, I didn't take a class from him though. He was like a five foot tall Holocaust survivor. The most hysterical lectures yeah. ever. Yeah. He made psych 101 entertaining except for the kids who felt like they were reading about themselves in every chapter of the textbook um he was he was brilliant they had such a great department but when i went back to school i was able to focus more on what i wanted i had enough credits from all the courses i took along the way good that i got to decide how i wanted to finish off my core yeah. and i took some amazing I took film classes out of the English department. I took, mm. um, <clears throat> I went deeper into some of the computer sciences side. I got to do what you usually don't get to do after freshman year, which Amazing. is take classes that I wanted to take yeah, yeah. just to Brilliant. learn something. Brilliant. It's been a it's semester so, between Hitchcock and Cassavetes in a dark room <laughs> being pretentious <laughs> about film. It was fabulous. Oh, David, I'm so glad you said that. It, so I do uh, uh, Penn alumni interviews, mm. and uh, I can't wait for my daughter to get into college so I can stop. But um, <laughs> what I always say is, <laughs> um, uh, we're such an entrepreneurial school, and the ability to take classes in various departments or craft your own major, and even you know they've created this these interdisciplinary majors: biological basis of behavior. Uh, PPE, um, philosophy, poli sci, econo uh, economics. Um, what you just shared is is a perfect example of that, um, where you can cross hatch and just go where your interests lie. And and now I I see it's sort of coming into focus how upon graduating you moved into this arena of technology consulting and systems integration. Is that how it happened, or did I skip a step or two? Um, there there was a step in the middle, I came back to Atlanta. And again, I always had this love affair with hospitality. Mm. And <clears throat> I um, wasn't finding what I wanted in Atlanta. Okay. And 
some of the folks, but I, you know, I'd come back to Atlanta because I figured it's a great place where I have an existing support network. True. And I ended up in technology by happenstance. The, hmm. I spent about six months looking for something in restaurants that would be meaningful and, and something that would keep me entertained that didn't have me longing to be on the floor in front of the house right. for management. So I wanted something more. Um, but I didn't want to go, I didn't want to start selling technology to restaurants. But I realized I love the technology part. I just didn't like the culture of feeding off the industry like that. Mm. So somebody had referred me to a voice technology services company. You know, that annoying on-hold music and uh, custom oh, yeah. prompts on voice sure. response units and the, the endless phone tree that you can't zero out of. Yes. Where, where can I find a human? Is there a way to find a human? There's no way to find a human. There's no way to find a human. And I'm the one who got companies to buy the custom prompts to do that. And and well, uh, thank you, by the way. Well, if it makes you feel better, (laughs) A, it was soul crushing and B, it turned out to be one of the best leadership learning labs that I'd ever been in. I Mm. learned everything I never wanted to do in business from the man that owned this company. (laughs) <laughs> and I wouldn't trade that experience for the world. It was no incredible. Those education. are the learning points. Absolutely. When we have pain that we're experiencing as a result, it of it, we don't it. forget those lessons. Exactly. I don't forget any of it. Um, I just no longer have my skin crawl when I think about it. Now I can <laughs> I can see it for the gift it was. It was the equivalent of Jedi training, and and lots of examples of how not to. And by the way, I can read through leadership books from Jim Collins to you name it and go, yeah, I learned the other side of that. Ooh, I learned the other side of that. And and it was fascinating. Um, But one of the guys that used to come in and deal with all the technology for this office and hadn't invited me to come join their firm um, as a partner. And it was fantastic because what I got to do was it was my first chance to rewrite the way technology was being used. I have a wow. fundamental belief that uh, I can't say it clean, so I'll, let me try. I have a fundamental <laughs> belief that we have it backwards. I, I sat in a meeting with these two fetuses from Oracle. They may have been 24. And they were trying to tell a man who'd been in business for 50 years as a, a huge camera brokerage company for used equipment selling all over the planet using a data viz database. I mean, just in it, strings and tin cans, the equivalent. Sure. And he wanted to upgrade. He was looking at Oracle as a platform. And, and he says to these two fetuses, how do I know that Oracle will be able to, to map to my business processes and make everything smoother? And this kid looks at him with full arrogance of an old man and says, actually, most of Oracle's customers map their business model to our system. King Grant closed his book, stood up, and walked out of the room. Like, um, because I think that, that was a pervasive belief that the that carbon oh, yeah. would bend to the will of the silicon. And that's Absolutely. exactly backwards. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's funny how like customer centric is like a recent management oh, phenomenon. Yeah, like, yeah. What? That drives everything. Everything. Well, that that's that's what we did. We we worked with advertising firms, marketing communications firms, PR groups, or advertising agencies, PR groups, and printers, you know, the people who used to put ink on paper, right? So yes. our job was to get the mainframes, the Macs, and the PCs to talk to each other. That wasn't the problem. Mm. It was getting the humans that used each of those. <laughs> to right. talk to each other so right. we did a lot of therapy and once we got the carbon to communicate then we knew what had to happen with the silicon and it was silicon. amazing i love so, that yeah. by the so way I, I brilliant a metaphor and framing yeah yes yeah well no it's very clear it's inherent in you um so tell us then about what led to you starting digital positions um FIFA, the world. So- the soccer I'm a soccer fan. fan. You just said a magic word for me. Absolutely. Well, I could cross call it by the right thing. Football fan. So um, <laughs> FIFA had a 
so, they were trying to create something like the NFL you, experience. You see my phone cover. Right? Oh, perfect. Born in Germany, so that's my well, team. Please, yeah, the last call I was on, this guy had a uh, Manchester United. So, uh, shirt on. The which crazy that they beat Liverpool over the weekend. Didn't see that's that. That's what coming. he said. No, I didn't see it, but I, I saw the recap. Well, and then because uh, the week prior that was such a dour match that ended in a <laughs> tie, but they just they had something they felt they could fight for more. It's something to prove. <sighs> yeah, FA Cup. It's a big deal. Uh, the, I cut you off, David. I'm sorry. Jesus It'll only happen a few more times. Oh no, that's fine. I'm, I've got three kids with ADD. Bring it. The the FIFA was trying to do something like the NFL experience, you know, a mobile multimedia okay. yes. immersive, immersive experience. Well, they ran out of money before they ran out of project, but I had the opportunity to deal with the the underlying technology, and a friend of my wife's best friend from when they were three weeks old. Um, uh, I'd connected with her and she was going to do some of the multimedia piece. And we were trying to work with FIFA when they ran out of funds. But Beth and I liked working together and we liked yeah. drinking and eating chicken wings together. So over beer, coffee and chicken wings, we came up with a way to work together. Within this network consulting firm, I had all these people saying, ooh, we want a website. I said, what for? Well, I don't even know what a website is. What's the internet? <laughs> She said, our clients are asking us, what do we do? So I had all this opportunity and no resource. And this was fourth quarter, 95, October of 95. And so Beth and I said, well, want to open a web firm? So we launched an internet strategy and web development firm at the Taco Mac here in Atlanta and sold the first website. And then I spent three days learning how to code. (laughs) <laughs> i love Oops. it oh that's fantastic the yeah entrepreneurial that's entrepreneurial teaser <laughs> just the same way you bent the will of pen and uh you know got uh, didn't get it didn't fail out you you, you worked the system out. that's yes. absolutely brilliant <laughs> um and so the fifa project that they had was that a build-up for the world cup in 94 that was the build-up for the world cup in 90, it would have been 98, because this was 95 that this was happening. Yes. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So there's, there's one in France, which France, you know, finally won a World Cup. Well, they have to have something to cheer about. <laughs> Although, it, it, yeah. Well, there's so much more to be said about I that. Know, I know, mean, that's another episode. Zinedine Zidane fan, but yeah, exactly. Let's table it, otherwise we'll never get through. My U.S. soccer um, career was abysmal. So even though I played for years, so let's not, let's not cover you that. You played? Wow, fantastic. Badly, what was your position? For a very long time, sweeper. Wow, I, I was asked as well, uh, but mine is spectator. Yeah. <laughs> I did parent coach as well for a number of years. So I've, that was the end. My kids all so went to nice. either frisbee or softball, and then we were done. That's with- great. The sweeper role has really morphed uh, in the modern game. I mean, like Franz Beckenbauer, of course, comes to mind as the uh, quintessential sweeper. Um, but um, I just think because we're a more defensive-minded game, uh, it's it's really needed to to shift. But again, that's, a, that's another, another show. Yeah. <laughs> Digital positions. You've launched this with Bethany. Um, Beth. t- oh, sorry, Beth. I apologize. Um, uh, see, now when I go ask her to be interviewed on the show, she's going to say no. Um, still get the he said, she said. I'm sure that'll be fascinating. <laughs> well, now we have tape. <laughs> oh. um, so talk to us about the growth of that business. What were some milestones you hit, whether that's in terms of a marquee client or a number of people you had involved? Well, we did a, a number of years. We were still feeding off the ad agencies, Marcom groups, PR firms, and printers because those had yeah. been my clients. And Beth had come from the music world. And one of the, one of the clients we got that let us, first clients that let us put our name on the bottom of the site, you know, site built by digital positions, was the third annual Music Midtown Festival, which is a huge music festival here in Atlanta. Yeah. Um, And my God, this is the first year that they've missed because of COVID. Um, COVID, They're still going. So we got a chance to put our name on the bottom of that site and the phone started ringing. And so the first thing was, yes, we got a marquee client that we could name 
And it started the flow. And we started bringing on programmers to help us. And, and, and I own this one. I had this problem. I had a mental block to hiring people that were non-revenue generating. They weren't throwing code or they weren't selling or they weren't doing something that I could immediately tie to revenue. I fought it, even despite the members of my Vistage group telling me how ridiculous that was. I okay, it. but as a young business that needed to rely on that, can you really be faulted for that orientation? Oh, I did that long after the time. Okay. Right? Long after when it served. It, it, as my first Vistage meeting, Anne Herman from Herman International looked at me and said, you guys need an assistant. I said, no. <laughs> I even write about it in the book, how daft that was and how, how different it was hiring that support for me. I was right. spending a lot of time, first in my zone of excellence. I was good at it. I got accolades for it. I got paid for it. I got rewards for it. Financial, emotional, spiritual, but it wasn't my zone of genius. And every minute I stay in a zone of excellence as of a zone of genius, I am stealing from myself and my clients. Mm. And I am doing things I shouldn't be doing. And I lobbied hard to stay in that zone. And as the technology events, I may have spent time in my zone of competence too, because it was a while before I let go of the programming. But it really was, I was not making room for who the company was becoming and who I was becoming. And I even lobbied Beth against the changes that would have moved us forward at a number of times. And that bit me in the butt a bunch. Well, it, it does. Um, zones of excellence are comfortable. Oh my because God, they're, they're, they're formulaic and you, you know how to do it. And then you have the peace of mind that I nailed it. Zones of genius are uncomfortable. They're challenging. They push us to our, our edge. Um, we have to deal with a lot more there. Risk of failure as well. That's heightened because... And, and the risks are deeper. Yes. Well, because it's... More rich and enriching. to our soul. All it's not something we can just say, oh, that's a skill set that's outside here. But that speaks to who you that's are. That's in here. Yeah. Yes. And that's the stuff that ultimately moves us. That's the stuff that when we become over calibrated and we become, though I hate the word imbalanced, that's what we're missing is yes. that soul touching and soul enriching experiences. And those don't always come from work, but they always are measured by what's going on inside. The, 100%. The, we get over calibrated away from that. And that's when yeah. the stomach yeah. turns as you turn the doorknob. That's. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know exactly what you mean. Uh, just very quick anecdote, because I want to come back to you. But uh, I felt exactly what you're saying. Um, I happened to graduate from Penn at 19, which accelerated my the age at which I progressed in my career. And so I was actually 28 when I made partner. And I remember the very next day looking in the mirror and saying, if I have to do this for the next four decades, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> and I so I felt it. And um, this, what's happening right now, is more my zone of genius, although I have a little bit of qualms saying that because I feel like I'm being self-aggrandizing. But uh, <laughs> interaction, connection, this is the stuff that I absolutely adore and love. So share with us what is your zone of genius that you finally migrated to or maybe you didn't do that in the context of digital positions you did that when you became a coach correct i teased yeah. out with digital positions beth and i realized that we had a lot of late stakeholderitis you know the famous mm. story is the ceo that came in at the end of the six-month project as we're launching it internal launch. And he says, why isn't the site blue? I love blue. I said, because your clients hate it. You can't have it. And I mean, he was pissed and I handled it badly and it took a little while to ameliorate the situation. But 
he, he finally understood that it didn't matter what he likes. It matters what their, the organizations they serve liked. And he let go of the chest thumping bullshit. So, but th that taught us a lesson that we can never get involved with an interactive initiative when we don't know what the broader initiatives of the firm is or are. And so that's, that was the tipping point because what I started mm -hmm. to notice in that when we sat with the C-suite, I wanted to know what made their organization special, yeah. why they were here. I didn't want to hear crap about revenue goals. No, why were they here? What's the shift they're here to create? And I started to see a pattern. If I asked that room of usually five to seven pudgy white middle-aged men, that's who most of them were, what made them special, what the shift was they were trying to create. If I got more than one different answer from that room, there was a problem. Exactly, well said. And, and I noticed just, that- That's genius, David. Right, where I got no answer, <laughs> if I got crickets or I got more than one answer, then what I noticed about those firms and those leaders is they didn't know why they were here. They exactly. didn't know what shift they were here to create. And, and when you take that to the office, you get what these companies were exhibiting. Flat growth, flat revenue, flat culture, blah, just blah, right? But when you take it home, that's toxic. Yes. To marriages, to parenting, yes. to oh, their own yes. lives. And that is what I realized was not okay because I was doing the same thing in many ways. And that was my wake up call. That was the ugly mirror, right? That was when the Coney Island circus mirror that I had as my reflection got yanked straight. Right. right. And that was uncomfortable. Not like zone of genius of uncomfortable. That was existentially uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's when I had my doorknob turns and my stomach turns moment. That was when I realized that I had been building the company I thought we should build. And even when my partner knew better, I lobbied against it. Yeah. I was leading the team I thought I should lead. I was being the leader I thought I should be. And, you know, living the good life is the dream. Living the should life sucks. And I got much better at the, at the latter than the former. Yeah, yeah. And A lot of shoulds in there. Well, there are. And what happens when that happens is you start to notice all of the lack, all of the yeah. things you oh, missed, yeah. Oh, yeah. and all the things you missed out on. And by Hurricane Katrina weekend, August of, of 2005, Elaine and I were on the way back from an event, Birmingham, Alabama, God knows why. And <laughs> I've spent time in Birmingham. Yeah, I've done time in Birmingham. And as, as we're coming <laughs> east, we could see the sky is turning black. It was already pounding New Orleans at that point. And what I realized is, in a totally melodramatic moment, <laughs> that the storm behind us was nothing compared to the one inside. Inside. I That's so poetic. Point David, seem where the that. only thing I was sure of were the five best ways to kill myself. Yeah. I was done. I was checked yeah. out. Yeah. And again, in a very melodramatic way, I realized that Hemingway actually saved my life. And not because of the literature or any of the story, but a fact that I learned, it's referred to as the Hemingway effect, that children of parents who have committed suicide, those children are 50 times more likely to attempt suicide in their lifetime. It's like this sick intergenerational blessing. It's the worst of epigenetics. And and I that's not the leg that's not the shift I want to create. Yeah, that's you not the refuse to give that inheritance to your no. kids. No. I get no, that. That, was, that so you know, did I find motivation? Would I like to say, yeah, I found inspiration to stay for me? No. No, no, no. I, and and that's okay. It is okay. Hump was, Oftentimes it's so, it, this idea of something bigger than us and, and nothing represents that more than children. Well, they were a lot smaller than I was at that point. <laughs> but that's, 
that's what it took. It took shifting the focus. I had lost so much connection with me. I wasn't going to find it here. That took a little while. Of course. But finding it there was also yeah. way more motivating. Yeah. So this epiphany happens mm -hmm. in 2005. And so you began exploring yourself and your zone of genius. Um, and within the next few years, I think by 2008 or so, you began more aligning with coaching and coaching practices. And there's a coaching institute that uh, you yeah. became involved with. Coaches Training Institute. It's, it's called Coactive right. Training Institute. Now they're the largest, oldest coach training uh, group. And I actually found them again through my wife, who um, after years of working in issues-based politics at a national level um, before we had kids, it had become a very us versus them culture. Everybody you meet, you size up. Are they, are they with us or against us? And that was feeling kind of nasty so that when Elaine went back to work, she didn't want to go back into politics. So she started researching. Long story, they got pointed towards coaching, figured out the best, you know, did her logic study, figured out the best place for her. Mm. Calls me in the first break in tears. I found it. I found it. I just so elated that she had found a home <laughs> and she's never looked back. I realized Amazing. living with her over the next eight months, holy crap, I want some of what she's got. I loved yeah, who yeah. she was becoming and what was surfacing. And I, you know, my deep FOMO gene, I wanted some of that growth. <laughs> and then I also realized, holy shit, she is going to outgrow me and fast. Yeah. So there was also yeah. the I want to be in the relationship <laughs> I gotta for the rest catch of my up. life. I, I don't want to catch be, up. Yeah, exactly. I gotta <laughs> catch up. So I went, I went to my first weekend and at about the same break, I call home and go, holy crap, this is amazing. Tools and structure and theory and and the bones of what I've been doing. Now I know what I was half doing. Now I get to really dive in. And it was amazing. And so that was 2008 early for her and and fourth quarter for me phenomenal it's just uh it's so great well i just i love the story of love your wife leading you to um what was always in you and it was always in her and that's I mean, i'm sure that's a strong always. basis for the attraction um that's really the, stunning. you asked me the zone of genius and and what i realized in my journey out of the hole two things. Um, one, I got the language for in the last couple of years. It, it actually comes from the 12-step community. It's called raising the bottom. Mm. And this is, this is a choice point for anyone. Mm. When you find yourself at that place of looking forward and you realize if nothing changes, it's only going to get worse. And you can wait till rock bottom or you can decide, damn it, this is the bottom and turn it from there. Yeah. And that is for so many entrepreneurs and, and high performing, high pressure environment leaders, that is such a gift Yeah, because they've, be, we are trained as entrepreneurs and senior leaders to look ahead and look at, you know, can we, we these are the conditions that need to be created to make the truth that we've decided on reality. Well, yeah. you've got to look at the scenario and say, can these conditions be created? Does my team have what we need to create these conditions? And when you look at that and realize, holy crap, if nothing changes, it's not going the way I want it to. Right. So if they're all of a sudden given permission to turn things around, that is a brilliant moment. That permission is sometimes all they need. Right. And so that was brilliant. For me, that was that another epiphanous moment. And the next one was realizing that what I'm here for, and this is my zone of genius, my, my purpose for being here is to be, the first piece of this is to be that resonant energy, to bring who it is and what it is that I am. But the core of it is to unearth 
and unleash the power of the heart. Mm. That's my work. That's my shift. That's why I'm here. I couldn't answer that if I were in the room with those pudgy white men in the early 2000s, but I can answer that now. And that drives everything that I do. My partnering, my parenting, my coaching, my leading, everything. When I feel like I'm living, leading, and loving at my best, it's because I am in alignment with that purpose. Yeah, that's extraordinary, David. For starters, I'm so thankful you found it. Uh, in addition, I'm so thankful you're you're applying that and you're bringing that to to others. It's um, it's it's really uh, it's magic that uh, you're able to to do that and bring that out. And you've spe- you've spoken so uh, candidly about um, some of the struggles, uh, depression, ADD. It gives such an authentic voice to what you're saying um and and those who have struggled and have been at that um crisis existential crisis mode identify with that so well and you have the potency to be able to say i've been there this is how i got out of it this is how i can help you get out of it well thank you and there's a piece to that that's so important i don't want to gloss over what you said what you spoke to beautifully was I think the term now is neurodiversity. (laughs) We don't like the term normal because there's either neurotypical or neuroatypical. And the problem (laughs) is that you wouldn't look at somebody who's diabetic and say, oh my God, that's a moral failure. And yet we look at mental health presentations, ADHD and anxiety. Yeah. in particular, as moral fa- failures, either as some kind of a character flaw or the parenting. Yes, some sort of character flaw. And that is destructive because Very. it is so prevalent. And when we have the, the comorbidity between entrepreneurialism and ADHD is is the only only place we find it higher is in emergency rooms and EMTs. Yeah. Right. And it's actually, I think, in some ways, it can be a superpower. When you look at the difference between hunter gatherers, the hunters and the gatherers, it's a very, mm. there's an evolutionary, ad, evolutionary advantage to a lot of those behaviors. But that, right. again, that's another show. The <laughs> idea that we treat these things as something other than any other medical issue presenting is is a failure of our acculturation, our education, and our, our business acculturation processes. It's We are failing people who bring a tremendous amount of worth and value and creativity and power to our organizations. And so people go through life hiding it. Exactly. Suffering uh, the stigma around it is um, crushing. Um, it, it feels like finally that since we're beginning a dialogue on it, it's getting better for future generations, but there's still more work to be done. I was elated when a friend shared with me that her eight-year-old boy was on a Zoom call and one of the um, fellow students said, oh, I have to go. I have my, I have to see my therapist. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> as casually as if she was saying she has to go for ballet class. Yeah. And, and I'm like, that's progress. That's good. Let's keep going. I mean, there's so much more work to be done in that regard. No, this is the stigma is exceptionally hard. And then that doesn't even take into account the cultural aspects of it. Um, Othering comes yeah. in all kinds of shapes and it's, yes. it's destructive. It's our Highly. differences that make, especially when you look at leadership, it's the differences yeah. that make the organization better. And, you know, if everybody you hire thinks like you do, First of all, you're a terrible leader. Second of all, <laughs> most of you are superfluous. I mean, if you exactly. don't have different ways of thinking, being, doing, and acting, then what oh do you my bring God, to the table? The Stepford Wives was not a model for leadership. <laughs> it was a dystopian future. So I think some people have gotten that wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, your coaching practice is thriving. Um, you've recently released a book 
uh, uh, end of last year, Mindset Mondays, uh, which I understand is uh, 52 weeks of uh, mindset and so to, to really help you change your mindset. So this is really your, your goal. It's a lab practicum for rewiring your thinking. And mm. it's, it's, yeah, I had a coach tell me years ago, you write the book you needed to read. So I did. I love that. That's and, so great. <laughs> the woman that worked with me on this, Laurie Shires, we created a framework within it. There are two things in there. I love removing excuses, right? And we created a framework to take these readily, readily digestible and immediately actionable chapters. All of them close with two things, six concrete steps tailored for that chapter. That's what the rewire framework mm -hmm. is. And there are sets of prompts for each chapter that give you a way to take the learning in that chapter, take it out into your world and make it real and make it stick. And because one of the steps, the W is for write. So this the rewire is an acronym. It's for reflect. Yeah, experiment. please walk us through that because I think it's genius. It's reflect, experiment, write, investigate, revise, and expand. And, and the W is right. And it's not, it doesn't say type. The acronym is not retire, it's rewire. And you write with your hand on paper. So for those of you who get the printed book versus the Kindle, there's a page at the end of each chapter for you to write on. So really right. have tried to make it as simple as possible. But, yeah. but rewire is a structured approach to help you integrate and reinforce new ways of thinking, being, or doing. It's fantastic. So, at the end of each chapter, you have a guide to help you reflect, take the time to breathe and reflect on what has surfaced for you in reading or playing with that mindset. And then there's an experiment step. It's an experiment that you can take out in your world to play with the learning. And then the right is to capture the experience and what surfaced through the experience. And then again, to go reflective, investigate to really unpack what you've just written and captured. So you can see what additional exploration is available. You revise the experiment, run it again. Now, the expand is the most important part. When I was in school, we learned chapter one in the math class in geometry, and then no test. Chapter two, we would go through using what we learned in chapter one and applying it to new concepts and new material. And then at the end of chapter two week, we would be tested on chapter one. So exposed to it, experienced it, played with it, used it, then tested on it. And so expand is exactly that, the chance for you to take what's come out of that revised experiment and through this, these exercises and map it to another area of your world and use that there. Lovely. So you're getting a chance to so play with it and expand its use so that the learning has a better chance of sticking and not being shelfware. Yet another exactly. book, fine, <laughs> hasn't been cracked. <laughs> right. Well, and uh, that's one of the best tools that you've just described uh, to um, uh, buck the trend of the forgetting curve, right? <laughs> <laughs> forgetting plummet. I don't think it's a curve. Yeah, that's true. It's a, it is more of a nosedive. You're absolutely right. I wouldn't right. ski that curve. Right? <laughs> it's like a triple black diamond or something. Um, Rewire excited me so much when I read it and read about the components of it because every business idea I've ever conceived of, I go through this exercise. I write it down and I go through these steps. You know, do the investigating, learn some more about the marketplace, the opportunity, come back, revise, and so forth. Um, and you know who I send it to? Mm. Absolutely nobody. <laughs> it's all in that vacuum. <laughs> That's for me. That's, That's for me to, well, it's like my test, my measure. It's mm -hmm. like, am I going to invest time, resources towards this? this is a vetting process for me. Like, Absolutely. can I validate this out? And so before you bring love... it to your team, before you bring it to your investors, before you bring it anywhere, it's anywhere, a chance for yeah. you to go through a discipline process. Ooh, sorry. Exactly. That word triggers people. People get flipped out by accountability. The process? And, and no, 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 no. 
um, discipline. I'm making oh, a joke. Yeah. yeah, sorry. Well, no, actually, remember, ADD. <laughs> process is another trigger word, but that's not one we have to worry about. Oh, yeah. But oh, that idea, it's, yes, it's a discipline approach, but it's giving yourself the luxury, the grace, and the space to run through a process that serves you and is yes. designed for you. So you're not yeah. writing it because you know somebody else is going to read it. This is for you. It doesn't get past, it doesn't go to anybody else until you've gotten past this and created something to go to others. Yes. But your own process. So it's not just exactly. a finger in the air saying, Oh yeah, this one's good. <laughs> right. Right. No, thoroughly, thoroughly. Uh, I love how your um uh your consults are called wake up calls. I think that's fantastic. Now, David, who are ideal clients to reach out to you for wake-up calls? I, I infuriate marketing people when we get to this place because I, I'm, I'm given the type of work that I love to do and the work that clients get to do in the sandbox with me, I don't, I mean, yeah, there's some demographic groups that I do a lot of work within. Yes, successful entrepreneurs and senior leaders. But I also work with a whole range of folk that don't mm. fall into either demographic uh, category. I have a psychographic that goes across all of my clients. And the way I describe it is, man, I, there was a point where I realized that my next level of professional success or fulfillment came from the next level of my personal growth. That yeah. working on getting better at being who I be, who I am at my core, is how I would get better at doing what I do. I stopped focusing on the doing and focused on the being piece. Those are my people, the folks who already know that God, this work is like the way Michelangelo talked about sculpture. No, I don't fancy myself at his skill level. The concept is the same though. Well, maybe I do in my zone of genius, but Michelangelo. There we go. I was going there. Talked about sculpture as saying that he didn't carve figures; he freed them from the stone. Oh, yeah. His work was chipping away everything that wasn't true, wasn't right, wasn't part mm. of the character. That's the work that my folks come in to do. Is is I get to hold the mirror straight. They don't have a Coney Island circus reflection of themselves. I just have to hold the mirror straight and reflect back what's true. And the work becomes clear. It's clearing away everything that isn't true. Yeah. That's that, fantastic. Those are my people. And if that resonates for people, yes. If people listen and go, huh, what? Oh, I don't like that. <laughs> Maybe not. Well, that's your, that's your artistry. Yeah. And uh, your clients are your canvas great way to say it <laughs> yeah they may be the paint no. as well <laughs> that, no, and, and well that's that brings up a great distinction opportunity seeing that there are clients who even know that the work is the internal work but they still want me to do all the work i'm a consultant not a consultant i'm a coach the client yes. is doing all of the heavy lifting my job is to create the container for that work to be done. It's unlikely any, I'm the only place in the world where they've had that kind of container created for them to Sorry. identify, focus on, and do that work. And the clients who want me to fix them, that's not the work. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. No. Well, and that guidance and that nudging or those guardrails are so mm -hmm. important in that process because even the best of us wonder, like, am I doing this right? Is this okay? I mean, I, I remember the story of Oprah saying after she uh, interviewed Bush Sr., right at the end of it, he goes, was, was that all right? <laughs> You're president. It's like, really? <laughs> and that's just in everybody, right? That's in just, everybody. It's all of us. Yeah. We yeah. need that. We need that guidance and say, yeah, you're going the right direction. Yep. David, this has been such a phenomenal conversation. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed, enjoyed it. Thanks for yeah. welcoming me to your sandbox. Well, uh, thank you for 
coming and playing for a while. Uh, it was too short a time. The last hour felt like five seconds. Um, and so uh, I'm going to hold you to that. I would like to interact with you more. Uh, absolutely. But uh, this has been absolutely extraordinary. Um, I wish you all kinds of success. I think, Will, you're, you're facing the world with an open heart and you're being thoughtful and people are going to flock to you. You're going to attract all the right people that you need to. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, be well. We'll be in touch. More Thanks to come. again, David. Take More care. to come. Absolutely.